uh, we're going to get right into our first session then. For the past few years, we've been commissioning new works. In fact, I see Adam and I see other people here who have done this work for us. Um, it's the only work that we commission. Generally, we're curators of the great radios being produced around the world. We choose a theme every year and we ask people to send in proposals in the spring and then we choose four of the more what we consider to be the more um, interesting and all over the map kind of interpretations of that concept. So, <clears throat> excuse me, every year we're picking a concept that we think can be interpreted on a lot of different levels, both, you know, very straightforward and then very figuratively. Um, and this year we picked the uh, theme of games. Um, and we're going to hear, as I said, four very interesting takes on the idea of games. And here to lead us in this session, I'm so happy to present Michelle Norris. Um, a lot of people last year, when we asked you, would you like to hear next year, Michelle's name came up quite a bit. I haven't told you that, but that was it's really fun to have you here. Um, she's a Peabody Award-winning journalist. Uh, she worked in newspapers. She worked at the Chicago Tribune, in fact. She worked at ABC News. And finally, um, saw the light and came to <laughs> National Public Radio. And um, we're very happy that you did. And um, she's going to host this session called Ready, Set, Go, presenting the 2005 Third Coast Festival Short Talks, Stories About Games. Good morning. You all need your coffee. Let's try that again. Good morning. <laughs> now you sound like you're ready, set, go. You're going to listen to four amazing pieces of radio this morning, and I'll tell you a little bit about the format because we're running late, so we want to get right down to it. We're going to listen and talk, listen and talk, and then we're going to bring you into the conversation. So what we hope to do is have sort of a master class and listening session, and you'll hear all of the producers sort of comment and ask probing questions about each of these four pieces. And I notice that a lot of you have notebooks. I encourage you to take notes as we talk and listen because at the end we'll have about 20 minutes to take questions from all of you and, uh, and this will run for a little bit of time. So if you take notes um, along with us, then we'll bring you into the conversation. The first piece we're going to listen to is by Blake Eskin. He comes to this with quite a bit of knowledge about gamemanship because he does story, his stories about board games have appeared on The Next Big Thing and in The New Yorker, The New York Times and The Boston Globe and also The Washington Post. His book, A Life in Pieces, began as a story for This American Life. He edits nextbook.org, which also produces a podcast about Jewish culture. His short doc is about a game called Go, something that a lot of people here might not know, but it is part of daily culture in China. 30 million Go players are devoted to this game in China, and there are two Go TV channels in that country. He follows the story of Feng Yang. She's only one of two women in history to become a nine-dan Go professional. That means she's at the top of her game. She has the game's highest ranking. His story looks at the challenges she faces, not only in playing the game, but the greater challenges in life. So let's take a listen. We call this game hand talk. Each stone put on a board has some meaning. 
like I am telling you something. I think what makes go beautiful is the communication. It's like you have a lot of things to say, but instead of say, it's just playing on board. And with the whole game, you don't need to say anything, and you shouldn't say anything. Basically,、uh, go is—it's like a war. It's the same thing. Instead of real person,、uh, we use stones. In go, stones is our soldier. Look, when you look at this situation, it's your turn. You are black, so you have to ask yourself, what should I do? Is my corner safe? Should I play outside or should I play? My father. Uh, died when I was eight years old. After one year, I start to play this game. When I was twelve, I left my mother to move to another city and live with other teammates. We are like、uh, big families. You know, we spend all our time on go, except in, you know, sleeping, eating. We think a lot about this game. So this group dead. But my question is, in this case, do we still need the moves to capture all those stones, or we should leave it there? We're goal players. We grew up in this environment with other goal players, so we don't know much about the rest of the world. <laughs> Our life is very simple. Okay, Ethan has a question. Most of the time, I played.、Uh, um, I should say, a little more aggressive. <laughs> That's my personality. When I lost the game, it's like end of the world. You know, I don't want to eat and I can't sleep. I really feel like losing the whole world. I got a thirty-five. You got a twenty-seven. So it's a close game. I met、uh, my husband in a in an English training course in Beijing. My husband found a job in the United States, and、uh, he bring the whole family here. After the first year, my husband got a leukemia. I don't really understand what is leukemia is. When I know, I feel I'm losing my husband. I decided、um, it's like a playing goal.、Uh, sometimes I behind, but what should I do? Should I give up and just resign the game? No, I can't. He was lucky; he got、uh, cured and、uh, sent home. And then I was start to worry. What is our future? And my husband can't work. How can we survive here? So I decided、um, to have a go school. Jessica, is white a lie? I thought, you know, this is this is the best move I can do right now. 
These are good, but we need to correct those. See the circle ones? It's not the correct answer. That's why I ask you to put your question on the board. So you know, the whole life changed. Uh, if I were in China, I'll be still a professional goal player. Even though I'm still a professional goal player, but I don't have really, uh, I don't really have uh, you know professional games to play. Mostly, I just by teaching. Rudy, you want to take a turn first? No. <laughs> How about Daniel? I still communicate with my students because they are telling me something, but it's just different. It's tricky, right? There are other tricky ones. See here. That's the problem. Look, the two stones you can capture. Which one you should? Let's let's sit up on the board. You want me for goal? The, the most important part is balance. And uh, last ten years, I'm trying to play more balance because you know something changed inside. This is not you can learn from the board. There's a Chinese proverb says, "Shi shi ru qi." That means the things happen on the world. It's like happen on the go board. I think uh, I understand everything from go. Like I have specific questions about the piece, but first tell us how you met Feng Yang. I was um, a, um, I was at a symposium at the Asia Society. There was an exhibition that I'd written about about Asian board games, and um, I had not planned to stay, but I just she was speaking after the person I'd gone to hear speak, and I just um, kind of was just so taken with her. It was like. Listening to um, I don't know a, a passionate scholar or a professional athlete or something like that who was you know at the who uh, was sort of at the top of their game and I just found her really compelling and so I kept in touch with her and then when I heard her backstory um, from someone else um, that's when I decided to pursue the story. Did you know much about Go? Um, no, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I actually have learned a little more about Go. I, I actually knew nothing about Go when I met her. Um, I'd seen people play the game. Um, I knew a little bit about it. I knew what it looked like, but I didn't know how you play uh, Go. And um, I, I've studied it a little um, since meeting her and, and, and beginning to understand. Uh, I understand the mechanics, but I don't... Um, it's it's hard for me to understand, you know, to look at a game of hers and understand why she's so good. Um, it's a very difficult. It basically requires recognizing certain patterns that just, you know, that just takes time. When you put this piece together, did you, was that a challenge for you to figure out how much you would reveal about the game? Did you did you wrestle with that at all? Whether you had to describe the game or explain it for an audience who might not know much about it. Well, it's um, it's I, it's something that I've actually, you know, I've been, I, I sort of stumbled onto this story about a man who invented a game about four years ago, and since then I've been trying to write about board games for people. And there's lots of writing for 
people who are, I mean, there's an extensive chess literature. There's a lot of people who play German board games, write a lot on the internet for other people who play German board games. But um, there's not, it's, it's a hard thing to explain to people who don't play. And so the challenge in writing for, uh, you, you either take time to explain the rules of something that you won't fully understand until you do, or, um, and, you, you know, and you risk losing the audience because in the same way that if someone wants to teach you a game, it's going to take too long to learn the rules. You don't want to learn the game. You just want to get into it. And so, um, or, or you um, leave people wondering exactly how it works. But I, my experience has sort of taught me that um, explaining the rules of something you know, if we picked up the sports section and didn't know anything about basketball or baseball, most of the stories would make no sense. And if you said, oh, but it's this guy holding a stick and he swings it, and then people run around the bases. I don't know that that's going to help a lot. <laughs> so, um, so I guess I erred on the side of explaining less um, and, um, you know, also sort of assuming that... Uh, you know, someone would, if, if people heard this beyond here, that someone would say things like, go is played on a, you know, on a wooden board with black and white stones. It's a 19 by 19 grid. Um, you're trying to secure more territory than something else. Also, it was particularly challenging to get Feng Yun to explain um, uh, the game concisely, uh, the rules of the game concisely, because she spoke about it with the knowledge of a master and in a very kind of technical way, and in the way if you went to hear a teacher, um, and they would explain for five minutes, and you wouldn't understand most of it, and then six months later, you would understand why they explained all that to you. So, Is, is there something encoded in the sound? If you understood the game, and you listened to the placement of the stones, and the rolling of the stones, and and the sort of, it, it sounds like there's a sort of rumble at some point, like the stones are inside of a can or a, a dish mm -hmm. of some kind. If you listen to that, would you understand something about this story through the use of that sound? Well, I mean, I, I, it, the, the stones, basically it follows the rhythm of a game. You place stones on the board, you place one stone at a time, you think for long periods, in her case, much longer periods than this piece would have allowed. Um, between moves, um, you capture stones and put them in a dish, which is that rattling sound. Um, and, um, and at the end of the game, you clean up the stones and you put them in the wooden box and you close the box. Um, it, it, it's not a specific game of Go, so it's not like um, uh, you can't hear from the placement what exactly is happening in the game, but it's meant to convey that and, and to build on this sort of metaphor she sets up in the beginning for, um, for um, each stone being a kind of communication uh, and a kind of message that sort of builds up over time. I, I'm going to invite the other three panelists to come in um, in just a moment. That you, she talks about a certain aggression that she plays with, and you don't necessarily hear that in her voice. And then when she's with her students, you hear something very, very, very different. Was that a, a moment of revelation for you, and did you use that in the piece as a moment of revelation for us? I mean, I, I did. I think that, um, like a lot of... I mean, she, she's on TV in China, or when she was in China, she was on TV um, sort of like 
Cheryl Miller talking about you know, giving game commentary, analyzing games. And so she's a professional athlete who's a seasoned, you know, I mean, uh, uh, and she is, and in the way that professional athletes learn how to bury their aggression until they really need to use it, I think she does the same thing. Um, so yes, I was trying to, I mean, it's interesting. She, the person she's beating 35 to 28 is a seven-year-old girl. And, um, and, um, and, and, and she gets great pleasure from that. I have to say that I, I also played against another of the seven-year-olds in her class, and, and that's the only person I've ever beaten. Go to. So, and, it, and it was weirdly satisfying, even though I'm terrible at the game. And six, six months from now, she'll beat my pants off. But, you know, so. Um, but, yeah, I meant to, I mean... I, I wanted, um, you know, it's it's um, it, it's hard it's hard to get. I mean, on, on one hand, she's not like an athlete in which, in the sense that she's really talking very frankly about her personal life, which is something that doesn't always happen unless you're in the Olympics and it's sort of uh, orchestrated for that. Um, but but on the other hand, she, I mean, part of her skill is not it's not just about playing the game, but it's. It's knowing, like any sort of top athlete or any top, you know, uh, successful person is, is when, into, when to reveal your aggression. So. Judith, Melissa, Michael. Well, I, I had a question. This was something that I s struggled with in my piece was dealing with sort of a game, a, a literal game, and then the metaphor of a game throughout someone's life, which... I found really tricky, and I think you really pull it off. I mean, were there some, was there some sort of way you went at that so that you know she, it didn't sound so obvious, like the game of her life? And the, or, I mean, how did you approach that, or how did? Well, I mean, the way I tried and failed was that the the original proposal was called "Life and Death Problems," and um, in Go, one of the first things you do is study life and death problems, and life and death problems are sort of they're problems where you, um, one, the placement of one stone will decide whether your pieces live or die. Um, that doesn't make sense. And, for, and I asked Feng Yun that question about 15 times, and she explained it in much more complicated ways um, that made even less sense to someone who didn't know the game. So I was trying to use that metaphor um, uh, and have her use it, and that didn't work. So... Um, but then she talked about it in the ways that she did, and that sort of opened that up. And when she started talking about the best move for herself and her life and things like that, that, that did not take a lot of prodding so, to get her to talk in that way. Um, like I have a question about how you use the sound. There's, I, mean, I wonder if there was a point when you were producing where you looked at your, looked at your material and said, wow, all I have are the sounds of stones. That's it. That's what Go is. And yet it, it's so evocative. It's so, so evocative of so many different things, of the different stories that she tells. And I'm just wondering if there was, if when you were originally conceived of the piece, were you worried about the lack of sound elements? And then uh, as you produced it, did you, uh, I mean, did I, you spare, I guess what I mean is I mean, so that sparsely was, produced, it, did, you, did you keep sort of taking out sounds because the silences and the, and no, I mean, that was my, so. I mean, that part of it was how I planned it. That okay. was how I conceived it, that it would be, um, 
that it would be this sort of slower piece we're using, because the game is very austere and silent, and, um, and I wanted the piece to communicate that, and sort of thoughtful. I mean, if you listen to a Go game, a professional Go game, it would be about 200 clicks over nine hours, and that's what you'd hear. Um, uh, what made it work was, I, I didn't know about this concept of calling the game hand talk, and that, I think, was what um, sort of tells you to listen to the stones or tells you that the stone, even if, if you're not saying what they mean, tells you that they have a meaning that's sort of building up. So, Did you catalog the sounds of the stones in some way to create almost like musical notes for, for this point in the story, I need this kind of sound? And um, uh, No. <laughs> 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 uh, so... <laughs> and where is the Feng Young Go School? Um, she is based in um, Livingston, New Jersey. She teaches in a um, uh, some. She teaches in a few sites. She teaches in Flushing. She teaches in Livingston, New Jersey. She teaches in Princeton, New Jersey. She teaches in Parsippany, um, New Jersey. And uh, I went to her school in Livingston, which is. Um, she uses the space of something called Harvard Academy, which is um, sort of an after-school um, uh, sort of tutoring, supplementary, uh, after-school, uh, mostly for Asian American students. And are you playing Go? Have Am you, I playing Go? Have you, have you started, have you kept up with it? Yeah, I mean, I have, um, I have uh, taken a few lessons, um, I, I mean, one thing, when I met her, I just, it's, I, I would love to get good enough to be able to study with her um, and maybe one day sort of, you know, write a book about learning Go from her and her story. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> At this point, we're going to go on to story number two, and that's by Melissa Robbins. She's worked as an independent producer and associate producer with the Kitchen Sisters and Homeland Productions. She's contributed to the Hidden Kitchens and World of Different series, which you've heard on NPR, and also Cutting Loose for the BBC World Service. Robbins studied radio production at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maryland. <laughs> And she previously worked as a newspaper reporter in London and New York City. (laughs) New York in the house. (laughs) Melissa's story is called Play by Play, and she looks at the game of politics and and one of the warriors in the rough-and-tumble world of politics. Let's listen to his story. Of the many kinds of games that human beings play, we must clearly distinguish between two. A finite game is played for the sake of winning. An infinite game for the sake of continuing the play. Uh, My name's Todd Elmer, and I'm 34. And I recently moved from Washington, D.C., where I spent the last eight years getting mixed up in politics, fighting the good fight. Um, My mother, she told me that she always had a sense that I was either going to be a preacher or a lawyer. And I think by politics, I kind of became both. The world is elaborately marked by boundaries of contest. 
and its people finally classified as to their eligibilities. I grew up um, in a very conservative, fundamentalist, Republican environment and towed the party line because that was what I was supposed to do, um, as most a lot of kids, a lot of people do. Um, went to college, went to law school, made good grades, top of the class, um, came out of law school, got a great job in Washington, D.C., uh, working on the Gore campaign. A really good job, actually, working at the headquarters. And I loved it, and it was working every day or something you truly believed in. It was, it was fulfilling, and yet it was also something that was very well respected. And even if my family didn't understand it, um, in the sense of how could you work for someone who you know, wants to kill unborn babies, and how could you work for someone who supports the rights of homosexuals, and even though they knew I was gay, they still had to respect it in a way. He was still the vice president. This was still the man who many people believed was going to be the next president. No one can be forced to play. It is an invariable principle of all games that whoever plays, plays freely. And what's more, no one can play alone. Election Day 2000, uh, November 7th, late afternoon, um, was standing in the rain on the Bain Plaza when all hell broke loose and um, Florida was given to us and we were celebrating and knowing I was virtually guaranteed a spot in the White House, um, thinking, I can't believe it, I'm, I'm, I've won. You know, I, I've worked, you know, for what I believe in and I've given it my all and, and what do you know, it's actually paid off or it's going to pay off. Can, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. The rules will be different for each game. It is, in fact, by knowing what the rules are that we know what the game is. This recount is mandated by Florida law whenever a final ballot puts the margin of victory at less than one-half of one percent. But there are no rules that can require us to obey rules. Uh, why the discrepancies? Why is it we're hearing 61 counties are actually in and we're hearing those numbers and numbers that's much closer? I, I think the recount was really politics cut to its bone, laid bare. It was uncharted territory. There weren't a lot of rules, and anything anything went. Bending, twisting, poking, and purposefully manipulating ballots in a manner that compromised their integrity. 73, We were arguing about 140-some ballots in my county, but as we all know, that, that's a pretty big number in, in that election. And lots of dirty, underhanded tricks, lots of blatant, raw-knuckle brawling, practically, went on. The crowd was heckling. There were lots of audible groans. Um, and at one point, I remember I had said something, and this big burly man that I had kind of noticed, who was sitting in the very front row, which seemed a little strange, jumped up and shoved his hand out in my face, literally a few inches from my face, and screamed at me, why are you trying to deny the good men and women in our military their right to vote? And that just hung in the air. And again, we were in a court of law where you think there are rules. There were no, I mean, this was, this was politics laid bare. This was win at any cost, do what you have to do. Bring a big burly guy, put him in the front row next to the lawyers, and have him scream at the Democratic lawyer and, and, and razzle me and, and un, unnerve me, which he did. <laughs> and all that mattered, they knew, was whoever got more votes, whoever could say they, you know, could prove they got more votes. And, you know, at the end of the day, they were proved right. 
because the ends had justified the means. So, A finite game can come to a successful end only when all of the players agree on a winner. Losing that election um, for me was losing, in a way, my last shred of, of hope at winning my own personal game, which was leading a, a life, a successful life that was full of self-respect and that was full of respect by my family and my, well, really my family, I think is what it boils down to, because I always was an outsider in my family. No other condition than the agreement of the players is absolutely required in determining who has won the game. God save the United States and this honorable court. I was devastated by the results. Um, you can't work you know, so completely and so hard for a cause without truly, truly believing in it. You know, where do I find my self-worth? Is it in my career or what? Um, I'd, I was deeply depressed. I'd found all the cliches. I'd been, you know, the high-powered DC lawyer and now I was the high-powered, volume-addicted, washed-out, political has-been. And I was 29 and everything was gone. And I felt like I had failed in so many, so many ways. And found myself in the front seat of my practically new Mercedes with um, a freshly bought garden hose um, taped to my exhaust pipe and piped into my uh, passenger side window, waiting for it all to end. And I was um, discovered by a family hiking through the, the woods where I had parked my car. And the next year, year and a half, was spent with me trying to sort of figure out how I had gotten to that point. Why was I so willing to end my own game? Because of the principle, whoever plays, plays freely. Each player in the course of the game must intentionally forget the inherently voluntary nature of their play. If, even for a moment, they know they are free to leave the game, all competitive effort will desert them. It's scary to admit to yourself that you are really questioning all the rules you've been playing by, that you don't believe in those rules. Because then the next obvious question is, what are the new rules? And um, it requires a leap of faith to say, you know, I don't know, but I, I want to find them. And I want to go down a new path and I want to play a new game. I don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but I don't want to play this game anymore. Melissa, I'd like to talk to you about the evolution of this story because I looked at your original proposal and you originally proposed to, to do a story on how everyone plays games to a certain degree to get ahead and you planned to interview a homeless drug dealer from your neighborhood in San Francisco um, who changes clothes often to keep ahead of the shopkeepers and the police. A policeman from the same neighborhood discussing the cat and mouse game of finding drug dealers. A 17-year-old girl talking about the elaborate game of high school social climbing. 
a high-powered attorney on uh, the scheme of success, a stripper talking about love and relationships, and your four-year-old nephew talking about how he angles for a cookie or a bedtime amnesty. <laughs> and we heard none of those things. We heard, <laughs> we heard some, but we heard something wonderful. We heard Todd. So, and this, so often things take on a life of their own. Tell us about this process and how this happened. Yeah, this... <laughs> I mean, I interviewed all those people, um, and even the four-year-old nephew was um, fairly cooperative. But um, I interviewed so many people. The the plan with that story was that originally um, all these people talking about their different games would eventually sound like they were saying the same thing, that they would sort of be finishing each other's sentences. Um, And it, you know, it was working to a degree, um, I think, but it, it just, uh, I think collage and that kind of thing is a really hard thing, at least for me, <laughs> to set out to, to find. Um, and even, I mean, I, I knew, I think, from the outset that it was going to depend on the tape and that I was going to have to gather a ton of tape, um, which I did. But um, it still ultimately wasn't coming together. But Todd, um, who's featured in the story, was one of those people. And um, I, kept, I kept saying to myself, you know, that I, that I totally didn't expect any of this from his interview. I knew that he was a lawyer um, on the Gore campaign. I knew nothing else of his personal life or his story. And um, it all came out in one interview, and I was just totally blown away. And I kept saying, God, there's this amazing story, but I, I can't work in this guy, you know, attempting suicide into this piece that has nothing to do with it. And I kept saying that and kept saying that and then eventually kind of surrendered and went, went with that thing that was um, moving me the most. So. And you surrendered because of the strength of his story, or did you have a moment of epiphany where you discovered that he really was, that there was something of a game and, and the metaphor of playing a game within this, this tragedy that he shared with you? Yeah. Well, sort of both things. I mean, I think I surrendered because of... Um, because of the story, uh, but I think I, I think I knew that um, he was, you know, I, I had the framework of the game with him. And then when I got the author James Kars, who's the voice of God, reading, um, they really seemed to be speaking to each other, to me. Um, he, uh, James Kars, wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games, which a lot of people have heard of, um, and I uh, had him read. And then those two really seemed to be talking to each other at some point for me. So. And did you see this almost uh, like a tragedy in three acts? Is um, I really, um, actually, even when it was in its earlier stages with multiple voices, um, had Kars kind of laying out the chapters according to um, you know, his sort of theory of who plays, what the rules are, and when do you win and lose, and how. And, um, so he, that, was pretty, that pretty much stayed the same from the beginning. I also wanted to ask you about your use of music, because I heard this without the music and then with the music, and I had a very different picture of um, one scene in particular, the big burly man, and you know, shoving his hand right up just in front of his face. When I heard it without music, um, I had sort of one picture of that man. When I heard it with music, I had a different picture of Todd. And it seemed to foreshadow what he said earlier about being unnerved by 
the whole situation. So you're, it's, if you could talk a little bit about how you selected music and how you used it within the piece. I was really nervous about music. Um, I was really nervous it was going to get in the way. Um, but when I, when I laid it in, I, I felt like in the end that it, it helped... It, it, that, um, it's um, a group <clears throat> excuse me, called the Game Show Soldiers. So <laughs> it's too perfect not to use. Um, but it, those pieces of music come from an album where it's those same instruments. So there's like six different songs in there, but they often sound like they're kind of echoing earlier versions and later versions. So I, I thought it helped ultimately, but I was really nervous about... Um, you know, making it sound like a Peanuts cartoon or something, you know, just kind of too, too obvious and um, not giving Todd the weight that I think his story has, deserves. How did you find the right balance? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. When I, when I started putting it together, I, I feel like uh, it just, just, I was just trying to use as little as possible and I hope I stopped in time. I, the, the, the plan was to just, you know, add a little at a time. And Michael, Judith Blake. I guess I just wanted to comment on the story, on him and his story. I mean, once you decided to go with it, clearly that's the story you're following. That, I mean, his, his story is really strong and you weren't expecting any of that <laughs> level of know trajectory of where he started and where he ended up right no no did you know that he grew up fundamentalist or any of nothing. that nothing i had a few email exchanges with him that were really you know he's a lawyer and he's really quick and funny and witty and and within like 15 minutes of the interview you know he was telling me this amazing story that wasn't at all funny and also it just struck me listening to it about the tragedy of losing of what that is you know, mm-hmm. in America, especially coming from where he came from, to then lose in that way with his family or with his friends or from what he had started at. Um, it's, like, so personal. Did you get the sense that he was sharing something with you that he hadn't, that this was his moment of truth? And did that inform your decision that he, he unburdened himself to you? Did you feel a certain responsibility when, when someone chooses you, do you then feel that a certain responsibility and then to take that story and, and do something with it? Yes, absolutely. And I would, I would have never handed the tape off for anyone else to mix either. I mean, I felt, I felt really, um, really honored. And, um, I felt, and I felt like his story just so, I mean, it was a loss for many of us, you know, that election. And, um, and, it, you know, that we all felt in some way. And, and for him, it was so personal that, um, I don't know, I just felt like we we're all sort of implicated in that event in some way. And, and it felt important to me. On top of feeling like a good story, it felt important. We're going to go on in just a second. But, Blake, I, I just noticed something ever so slightly when we went into, I guess we can call it the third chapter, where you realize that he's attempting to take his own life. I, I just saw a slight body language where you sort of sat yeah, I wrote back. Down, I wrote down death and games, and I was going to, um, I was also thinking, um, there's also, um, um, I think it was um, Alexander Coburn wrote a book um, called Chess and the Dance of Death, 
And um, I wanted to, I mean, want to go back to your question to me and just ask you if um, the sort of this, the, the finality or the seriousness of death is what helps you focus this question of, you know, the relationship of games and, and life. I set out to do a funny story. I mean, I was dead set on doing a really light-hearted, funny story, and I got none of that. I think when you... <laughs> not even for my four-year-old nephew. <laughs> I feel like when you... I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a light topic, the game of somebody's life, I, I realized after I wrote my proposal. Um, it's a... People... It leads to some really deep places for people, and... Um, it, that, it wasn't the only. <laughs> it wasn't the only suicide story I got out of my game interviews. My, oh my God. Uh, my, the exotic dancer that I interviewed had a, her. She was married, and um, and her husband committed suicide, and that was part of her sort of thing about love and the game of love and the game of relationships. And I, it, it, I thought, I thought, what am I going to do with all that? Yeah. <laughs> you know. It, but I was. A lot of people went to some very deep places with the with the idea. So, I, I don't know. I hope, we'll, I hope we'll hear more of that. I'm sorry? I hope we'll hear more of that. Oh, I, I, I really, yeah, I have to work more with her. She's amazing, so. All right, on to Michael. <laughs> Michael's short doc is called, There Was a Whole Lot of Hundreds. <laughs> First, a little bit about Michael Cavanaugh himself. He's an independent reporter and producer based in Brooklyn. He began working in radio as an intern for NPR's Talk of the Nation, and then he went on to work for The Connection on the media and the next big thing. He's taught and mentored WNYC's radio rookies and trained community radio journalists in Afghanistan. His domestic and foreign reporting now appears regularly on NPR and PRI's news programs, also on Slate, Grist, and the Boston Globe. He was a 2004 Pew Fellow in International Journalism, and he brings to us, as I said, the story called There Was a Whole Lot of Hundreds. He looks at high school students and the culture of cheating, and uh, a game, I guess, in which the only rule is to actually break the rule. And he talks to um, a number of people, teachers, students, someone who's actually studied this, and, uh, and we hear a little bit of, we, we hear an interesting take from him in this story also, so let's listen. This is Michael Kavanaugh, the public radio reporter. Oh, hi. So here's the deal. I'm talking to students and teachers and collecting their favorite stories about cheating. Mm -hmm. And I hear you have a story. Yeah, I have a story. Okay, one that I'm most proud of. Um, I'll give you two that I'm most proud of. <laughs> Do you actually see in your classes people cheating? Yeah, of course. I don't know. It's just like so easy. Well, there was standard things like little sheets, like little crib notes. People write answers everywhere. People paying each other to finish off their essays. I've seen people like text message each other answers during classes. Taking tests out of the location. I used to take my calculator and I used to write all my notes in that and just open it up during a test. Or people borrowing each other's homework, which no one really considered cheating because it was you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I mean, it happens everywhere. <laughs> I didn't know one person who didn't cheat at LaGuardia.
I'm Don McCabe, uh, and I've been researching for about the last 15 years issues of student integrity with regard to their academic work. You know, there, there are a significant number of students who don't cheat at all, and then there are some students who cheat when they feel the necessity. Then you have a group of students that I would consider your more hardcore cheaters that are cheating any chance they get. Uh, it's almost a game with them to see what they can get away with in some cases. We had uh, a couple of kids who were suspected of handing in very similar papers. And when we confronted the kids about it, their first phase was, we don't know anything about it. You know, it's remarkable to us that they would turn out to be the same. <laughs> and then when I sort of showed them, I said, well, you know, we're not talking about similar. We're talking about word for word the same. And so they then backed up and said, well, you have to understand, Mr. McCartney, we're really, really, really good friends. And what really must have happened here was that our minds really became one mind. <laughs> so I'm having trouble keeping a straight face. There's definitely some that are gaming this system uh, and gaming certain teachers. Me, myself, and my friends were once involved in a situation where we decided that we were going to chip in and somebody was going to use a sidekick. A sidekick is one of these new phones that has the internet. And especially during the winter, whenever it has these big jackets on, it's real hard to see it. There are some students who prepare to cheat. They have codes or, you know, they purposely sit together and they've worked out a system that they're going to use. So I remember us sitting in the classroom and, yeah, you, you got the sidekick, right? Like, yeah, yeah, you don't just cover me. But then, like, every two seconds, you'll hear a kid say, Mister, I, I can't read this. And just ask like the dumbest things, or like, oh, this is real blurry, I can't see it. Or can I go to the bathroom? And then how would people find out what the answers were? The person with the sidekick, he would tell the person to the right of him the answer and the person to the left. And then from there, it would just work it, its way up towards the front of the room. So how did you guys do on the test? Oh, we did really, really good. I remember the lowest score was like an 86. There was a lot of hundreds, a lot of hundreds. A lot of that, I think, is the thrill of getting away with it as much as it is doing well on the test. And when you all got your papers back, did you all like kind of get together and congratulate yeah. each other? Yeah, we were like, oh, yeah, look, I got a 98. And she was like, oh, I got an 89. It worked. It really worked. And the teacher had no clue what was going on. Students look around and see all this cheating on the part of, you know, clergy, business people, politicians, you name it looking over somebody's shoulder in a test or exam, and they say, you know, what's the big deal? It's so normal that kids are like, hey, that kid's cheating, oh well. Damn, I should have sat next to that kid. Some students are just lazy. Uh, they don't care about school. Some students are so concerned about doing well uh, because of pressures their parents put on them or just the college admissions process in general puts on them. Uh, they're compelled to cheat. Like sometimes if there's a, like a big work overload and like I have a pop test out of nowhere or something like that, appropriate measures needed to be taken in order to get the appropriate grade. The stigma for failure is greater than the stigma for cheating. And so they would rather take their chances on cheating. I teach in Boston, you know, a large um, urban high school. And when I started, it was probably the lowest performing high school in Boston. And what really struck me was my alarm at the absolute lack of cheating because it has become for me sort of an indicator of a student's level of interest in school, motivation in school, and even an indicator of their likelihood of dropping out or not. 
Are you actually saying that you wish your students cheated more? I do feel like it would be a sign to me that my students cared. They say, you know, that uh, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. It's the person who can get ahead, doesn't matter how you do it. And so these skills that I'm acquiring of being able to manage all this information and figure out how to take shortcuts and, you know, get more work done in a shorter period of time are skills that would serve me very well when I get out in the real world. So do you, how do you feel about that now? I mean, sometimes I say to myself, you know what, maybe I should have stood up that night just a little bit later and studied. But I look back and when I think about it, I just laugh. Michael, how did you settle on the subject of cheating? Um, you know, as when you're, you're thinking of the topic, you can pitch a couple stories, and I had my first story, and it was much more in line with the kind of work that I do. It was international. And I just started, just, oh, sorry, I'll speak up. Move the um, microphone just a little bit closer yeah, sure. to you. I'll answer this way. I went to an all-boys school uh, for high school, and the kinds of things that kids would do there were incredible. And um, I mean, I definitely had, I mean, cheating was definitely a, a, a game that kids played in, in my high school. And I remember that. And I actually tried to get back in touch with some of the kids who I knew, for instance, got into college because they cheated. I mean, they, they cheated the whole way through school. And, um, and, and uh, I, I, no one wanted to talk to me um, <laughs> about that kind of thing. Anyway, so that was the original conception of the piece, was... was uh, seeing that. I was curious about your tone, if that was by design, if you were trying to, to introduce a level of gamesmanship in the reporting, like, you know, setting up, like, we hear it in the first phone call. So, here's the deal. Right. Or maybe you make all your pitches like this. <laughs> <laughs> it really depended on who I was talking to. Um, teachers were very, very anxious about talking to me. Everyone was, I talked to everyone anonymously. Um, Teachers especially, I mean, you know, you can't get into, it's so hard to get, like, interview in a public school. You know, I was not allowed to interview anyone in schools um, within the, the school building. And teachers didn't want their names to be released or their school names to be released or anything like that. Um, I would talk to those teachers much more seriously. Um, the students, however, you, you know, inevitably, they're, it's important to kind of elicit from them uh, they're, high school kids, I've worked with high school kids a lot. When you, it's so hard to get, to get them to talk to an adult. It, it really is. And um, so one of the things you kind of do is, is you talk for a while and, and, and you know, you, you've you become part of the, you become part of the kind of game, you're right. I mean, it's a sort of game that you play where you just try and get in the mode that will elicit from them the tape that you need. You, there's a lot of this is on the phone. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that was part of, if you were trying to sort of get inside their world in this culture where kids always have a, a phone to a their ear, if that was... Yeah, I mean, there were, there were several reasons for that. First of all, is logistics. I ended up interviewing over 30 people for this story, and, and they're from all over the country. And, um, uh, that, you know, that's the first reason for, for a lot of it being on the phone. Um, the second is that it, I was hoping to make it sort of sound like a confessional line in a way. I mean, one of my favorite pieces of all time is is that early, early, this American life piece. 
about the confessional line, the New York City confession line. I'm sure a lot of you, you all know that piece. Um, and uh, yeah, and then the other thing is, I mean, there's not tape in there, but I mean, so many, there were so many stories about kids using cell phones and text messaging uh, and, you know, using camera phones to take pictures of, I mean, GREs of, of any kinds of tests. Um, and it's a big part of, of cheating culture right now. Um, but you decided not to use a sort of the techno sound of, you know, tapping on actually, keys or, you know, opening it, it, a cell phone, that sort of familiar... There's, a, there's not a lot of sound there. I mean, you know, there's not a, that's the point of it, I think, is that uh, cheating is something that is, is quiet. <laughs> <laughs> How hard was it? You talk about getting the students to talk to you. You mm-hmm. know, you, when you're talking about difficult subjects, often you find that you have to just throw out your first notebook because people sort of tell you what they think you want to hear. It's like peeling an artichoke or, or really more like an onion. You have to just sort of hang around long enough to get to the real story. How long did it take you to get I mean, it there? Always, it, it always took me a series of emails and a series of conversations. I mean, as much, you know, 30, like 30 people on tape say, but I'm sure that I probably had conversations with 50. 50 or 60 kids, I mean, you know, which are just, you kind of feel them out and see if they're going to get you good tape or if they'll actually be able to tell the story. I mean, this, the, the main story that I use is not that unique or even, or even in a lot of ways the best story that I got. I got stories that were much more outrageous. I got like Watergate break-in stories. But they weren't, <laughs> but they weren't told that well. And, and so much of what you have to do is just find the right person to... To, to give you the tape. So what did, what did, you say they weren't told that well. So how did you choose the stories to get the right rhythm and balance and to create the arc that you wanted to in a short piece? It took a long, long time. I think that Melissa and I had a lot of the same, um, I don't want to say issues, but the, the same, went through the same process where we were trying to do something that was very ambitious at the beginning. You know, the piece that you have in, in your mind for a collage sort of piece, I think, is inevitably um, uh, witness to an execution. The David Isay piece, where he, his use of cascading voices is so unbelievable. Um, and, you know, what you forget is that that's, almost, I think that's half an hour. Um, and when you only have six, what I realized was that I couldn't get enough story. I couldn't get... The cheating stories are usually complicated, you know? And, and you, you can't tell four of them in six minutes because you don't have time. So, I, I mean, the original... As this piece evolved, I probably had six or... I probably had six full stories in there. And, in, and it just was sort of too much like a collage. And, and you, you kept taking out stories, taking out stories, taking out stories until you had one that I think conveyed pretty well what it's like to be a high school kid playing the game of cheating. It seems like the, the fact that the people that you interviewed were anonymous would actually help because you didn't have to right. introduce them, explain who they were, place them, so it gave you... Right. No, that, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and even the fact that I was anonymous to them was, I think, helpful in some ways. I mean, I originally went out to playgrounds and started trying to talk to kids. <laughs> And you're, I mean, can you imagine you're like this kid and you're playing basketball and this like, in your middle of New York City and yeah, they weren't having it. <laughs> you know? Do you have a cheating story? What? Dude. Yeah, anyway. Blake, Judith, Melissa. Um, actually, I mean, I had a question about that, um, that teacher who comes in towards the end and sort of talks about the, um, 
I don't know if it's the value of cheating or, or, or um, is that something that you had considered before you started reporting or is that something you kind of discovered? The, ver the very last. When she talks um, about the school where um, right, nobody yeah, cheats. Yeah, right. Um, it was one of those funny things when I heard, heard that story. That's a friend of uh, card picking you guys all might know from WNYC. She, um, she, when I heard that story, I was like, it was one of those eureka moments, you know, where you're like, because at that point I'd read, you know, every literature, every, I was talking to anthropologists who studied cheating with monkeys. And I really was. And I had read several books on cheating. I mean, at this point, I was like, who, is gonna, who can I talk to? And so I knew a lot about cheating. Like, I can talk about cheating for a long time. Um, and, and, and how, you know, in every sphere of American life. But then I, I had never heard what she said. Never, ever, ever. Um, and I, I thought of, I, I do, I did work with Radio Rookies for a long time. And all my kids, are, some of them are, are in a lot of low-performing schools. And they, um, they cheated. <laughs> so it was amazing to hear from her that, that she actually didn't see it, you know, and, and, uh, and that it was because they just didn't care. These kids didn't care. And that was one of those moments, yeah, you're right, where you were like, wow, this is, uh, this is cl clearly tape that's going in the piece, you know. Or, or clearly, uh, for me, it was like, oh, that's where, that's where I'm going to land. You know, that's, that's where you're going to get to. Because it, in every, you, you don't want it to sound too light either. It was a more serious kind of thing. Uh, did you tell people, don't worry, you won't get in trouble, or like? Yeah, that took a lot of convincing in, in some cases. Some people didn't believe you. And yeah. Some even people on didn't. the phone? Even, e even, on, even on the phone, especially, especially the teachers, especially the teachers. I would always try, you try to, you want to ask them questions with their name, right? And there are some teachers who I would be like, okay, so wait, what's your name and what grade do you teach? And they would be like, no. What were they so concerned about? Selling you know, their as reputation much as everybody their cheats, right? I mean, I think the numbers that, that this guy had are, are that 90% of us have at least copied homework, right? Um, but it's still funny. It's something that, that people just don't necessarily want to talk about. Of course, you can find people who uh, kind of like love the, the game of it, right? They love to talk about it as a game, but um, yeah. Um, I've just lost my train of thought. Well, you know, the, the young man that you talked to that had the bravado. Sorry, I missed the, that again. the young men that we're talking about the whole the whole yeah some of, of them had some of them had that but you also had to elicit that too I was going to say how long did it take you to get there oh, to, to um, get to that story the the one the main story that I was using um, you know some people some people um, some people are good talkers I mean he in particular was just he was actually pretty easy to talk to we we talked a couple times and then. Finally, it was just, okay, can you want to tell me about this one incident? Actually, he has like 15 cheating stories. I mean, that was just the longest of, and the most <laughs> involved of them. So, yeah. We're going to go on to our, our last short doc now, and this is called Tongues Twisting. This is brought to us by Judith Sloan, who is an actress, an audio artist, an oral historian, and educator whose multi-character solo performances combine humor, pathos, and love of the absurd. Her work has been published by W.W. Norton and Second Story Press, the New York Times op-ed. Produced, she's produced for National Public Radio, New York Public Radio, and she's presented in theaters throughout the United States. She often collaborates with her husband, Warren Lehrer, and they have together produced the book, and now the traveling exhibition called Crossing the Boulevard, Strangers, Neighbors, Aliens in a New America. 
This short doc is called Tongues Twisting, and it grew out of work that Judith Sloan does working with young immigrants in a theater workshop. And I'm not going to tell you too much about how this came about, but I am going to tell you that your ears are in for a delight. So let's listen. I direct a theater project in Queens, New York, for kids and teenagers who come from more than 50 different countries. Most of the kids are new English speakers. We develop scripts from playing theater games and from storytelling workshops. It's not always easy to get them to focus. Two months before we were supposed to do a performance, I showed up for a rehearsal, expecting them to have their lines memorized. Half of them were running around playing games; the other half were laying on the floor. I begged them to focus. They whined and complained. Theater was supposed to be fun, and I was ruining it. I was making them work too hard. So I laid down on the floor with them. They told me they were exhausted from speaking English. I didn't know what to do, so I asked them to show me all the verbal tricks they knew in their own languages—songs, poems, games, tongue twisters. The one that I used to like the most—it was like, "Marinero que se fue a la mar y mar y mar para ver que podía ver y ver y ver y lo único que pudo ver y ver y ver fue el fondo de la mar y mar y mar." I think it was like, "Um, in English, sailor who went out to sea to see what he could see, and the only thing he could see was the bottom of the sea." It makes more sense in Spanish. This doesn't even make sense in Hungarian. Suddenly, everyone was motivated. They were stopping me after rehearsals outside the building to sing me songs and recite more tongue twisters. Attila is 18. He comes to rehearsals with red hair one week and green hair the next week. It means bearded jackal. If he chooses, he just stands. And even though this poem is short, his beard is made out of spinach. They were just so relieved that I wasn't making them speak English. When I talk in English, I have to use so much energy of me. A practicing Muslim, Digarns is the most traditional of the group and the most outspoken. In your language, you can say like anything because it's in your tongue, so you don't have to think. But when you use English words, you have to think and talk. So it's like. Two kind of energy using, and also when I go home and talk in my language, my teeth and my mouth, my tongue, everything gets so relaxed. It's the same way I have talked to my friends. They feel the same way. Their mouths get so tired when they speak English. So I put the scripts aside along with my need to teach them and start out on a mission to get them to teach me as many games as they can remember. Did anybody play these games when you were a little kid? Yeah, we did. Yeah. What do you call numbers, those? Numbers. numbers. All right, numbers is like it's a game that you play, and it's a counting game. You start from one, and you go to the highest number you can. Some of us can't go to like thirty. We probably end up at ten. There's one, two, three, four. It's a game where when the Afghani teenagers get together, the girls and mostly they play in hockey. So you're punching the person in the stomach? No, not punching. No. Just the like finger this. right, put inside the stomach. 
Miképpen volt éves pókhálós vénterem zugában My name is Attila. I'm from Budapest. I came to New York two years ago in 2003. I already spoke English. In Hungary, and for a half hour a week, I spoke to my dad in English, and now that I'm here, I speak to my mom a half hour in Hungarian once a week. Attila was really good at the tongue twisters. He had had a lot of practice playing theater games when he was a kid in Hungary. For example, you're a store salesman and you're selling body parts and someone goes in the store looking for a left toenail and the conversation would have to be the tongue twister and if I stopped in the middle of the tongue twister the other person in the scene would have to continue from the place where I stopped. First time my mother put me on a plane by myself from Hungary to the US I was six. And then um, this whole going back and forth for a bunch of years was going on. I'm constantly leaving. I'm constantly, you know, getting used to new people, getting used to new customs. And as a kid, you know, it's fun. But now it's like, okay, it's enough. All the game playing made it easier for the kids to share their stories of migration. Some families came by choice. But Zeherand had no choice. I was two years old when I left Afghanistan, and on that time I was war there. So we left for Pakistan, and we were in Shower Pakistan for 10 years. I moved here on September 2nd, 2001, without my mom. And after a week, the September 11 happened. It was really hard for us. Because my mom was in Pakistan, and after that, it was getting hard for the peoples to move here in the United States because they will think that they will do something wrong. Zigran tells me she wants to take six months off from high school to spend time with her ailing mother in Pakistan. Even though I don't have a green card, I want to take a risk. Because who knows if the law will allow me to come back or not. Mom! Zigrant writes a new poem and brings it to rehearsal. I spend another month with the kids staging and reworking all the scripts. On the night of the final show, my students perform pieces about longing, memory, friendships, the future, and home. Sometimes in their own languages, sometimes in English, using the games they taught me and each other. The rules of the kids' games don't change. Navigating the rules of their lives is another story. Now, Judith, when we talked about this before the panel, you said you struggled 
with the notion of whether you should put yourself in this story and, and, and do the narration or whether you should let the students tell the story themselves? I guess at first I was, um, the proposal was to do a really rich sound mix and I had done a lot of other pieces where I wasn't in them at all. Um, and I, I thought that that's what I was gonna do and then as I was talking to Johanna and she kept asking me questions about how things came about that, that I was part of the story of how they ended up doing things because that's exactly what happened. The tongue twisters came out of frustration and me asking them to just show me a bunch of tricks. And so it became clear that my relationship with them was part of why we were doing any of this and that the theater workshops were why they were telling any stories. So everything kind of built on each other. And as you heard them starting to go through these tongue, tongue twisters and these, these limericks and these games, you could have applied that to so much of what you do. You could have used it in the theater, you could have used it in, in documentary work. And so did you, did you immediately hear a radio piece? Actually, no. They, because I work with them and I don't have another person recording with me, logistically it's really hard to, all of you know, to you know, have the headsets on and the mic and make sure you're not getting hand noises and clean sound. So the tongue twisters that happen in the beginning where they start vamping off of them, you know, and going like, I um, first had them do the tongue twisters and then we did, I had them do these, tell me what they meant, and then we did this extended theater piece where they did those as character walks talking to the audience as if they were having a conversation. And it was really hilarious, but I couldn't record it. You know, it's really crappy recording. And we had talked about um, uh, in the editing process that that's kind of what we wanted to use, but there was no real tape. So then I was kind of constricted by what I had. You know, what was the tape that I had? What were the stories that I had? And we went through lots of different stories also. Oh, this is a good story, this kid is playing a game with me, but I'm the only one that can understand his accent, so uh, I can't use it. So those kinds of things were also decision makers. There, there are certain rhythms that are common in some of these. That yeah, the clapping games. I mean, how many girls here played clapping games when you were younger? And then I started seeing all these girls from Columbia playing something, and I said, oh, I used to do that, and it's exactly the same hand moves. And then uh, the Afghani girls were playing something slightly different, but they used the same hand moves, different song. And that's just amazing that all over the world, girls play similar clapping rhythms, and then it's easier for the younger kids to teach each other these games because they all know it already. Did you have them when, when they actually did this? Did they do it individually or did you do it? Did you record it? I had to go back and get them to do it again. And does anybody work with teenagers? I mean, there's a few teenagers here, but, you know, it's like, all right, stop shuffling your feet, you know. <laughs> and they're used to me, so, you know, they scream at me too, you know. They hear it in the piece a little bit. Hi, Judith, you know, where you been? So I had to go back and get them to record it once I once the proposal was accepted, so I would have better sound. Because I didn't want to use all this crappy sound that I had already. And I had already been working with the girl from Afghanistan and a bunch of them 
recording their stories for hopefully another piece, a longer piece on her. Did Veron go back to see her mother? Uh, yeah, it's actually really sort of horrible. Um, the day after I submitted the final piece, I guess was August, like it was right around September 1st, and she told, we were going to do a piece on her arranged marriage at one point. She wanted to change her name, and then, you know, I was working with Johanna and editing, and it was just too heavy, and um, so I had all this tape about the games she was playing in order to get out of this marriage, and thought that that was going to be the piece, but it was just too heavy and too complicated, and um, it took me three months to understand all the complexities of it culturally also, but she went back to Pakistan on August 29th, and uh, on September 12th, and I have all these emails from her, she emailed me, like, Miss, you know, you have to help me, I'm dying, everything is darkness, this marriage is going to happen, you have to... So her family kind of tricked her into going back by saying that her mother was really sick, and... That was really devastating to her because she thought that she'd be able to go back and tell her mom that she didn't want to get married and her mom would look at her and see the pain in her eyes and say, okay. And so the opposite happened. So now, um, you know, anybody that does this kind of human rights work, I spent like three weeks with lawyers and other kinds of things, safety nets for her. And now I finally got a hold of her like two nights ago and said, look, I'm playing this piece. Um, in Chicago, and, you know, what do you want me to say? And she said, tell the truth, miss. I said, my truth? She said, yes. So I asked her if she wanted to keep working on a piece on arranged marriage, and she does. So I'm just going to swap out her name with a different name and hopefully work on a longer piece with all these emails. Um, And we're just trying to get her back to the United States, which I think we're going to be able to do. With in November first, huh? With or without? Did the uh, marriage go through? Yes, she's not only married, but she's kind of owned by the family. So that was part of the problem: is the father-in-law won't let anybody speak to her, even her own sister. So you don't have to ask me how I got through, but I got through, and um, I'm a little bit like a pit bull on these stories. So um, I actually talked to her, but I didn't know if I was going to talk to her before I came here. Um, so it's kind of intense and you know all the stories are like that you know that's a really fun piece and the kids you know they're still performing I'm still running this project and they'll have another performance in the spring and they're always doing this mix of you know clapping games and songs and other things and these really heavy stories because that's what their lives are like and Attila is back in Hungary because he didn't really like being in the United States (laughs) We're going to ask you to participate in the conversation if you want to start heading to the microphones that are there in the middle of the room. And before we hear from the audience, Blake, Melissa, Michael, do you have any questions for Judith? Um, I, I was, uh, there are so many ways you could have gone with this. I mean, like, like you said, I did, had no idea about the marriage story, but when I first read the proposal, I, I, but I, I thought you were going to go one way and you do so many different things, but how did you sort of end up on the language issue, it seems like, you you know, the sort of... 
Uh, the language thing, that's a good question. Uh, I really loved the tongue twisters, and they were really good at it. And those were live mixes that they did themselves. You know, we had trained, I had trained them to like back off the microphone and fade out of each other. And, you know, it was all this work, and they were just beautiful. I loved the tongue twisters. They just, so I knew I wanted to use them. And then, I mean, for me, this process working on this documentary was really good. I had a really good working relationship with Johanna, and she kept asking me, well, what happened with the tongue twisters, and how did that change you? And then it made me realize how it had changed me working with them. Because I didn't know that they were exhausted from speaking English till they told me. I just thought, how come you didn't memorize this stuff? You know, so it sort of evolved with questioning, you know. Again, we'd like to hear from you. So if you have a question, if so, to make sure we can hear you, if you can head to one of two microphones there. What are the, the how, what are the special challenges to producing a short doc? leaving out really good things or feeling like you didn't explain enough, I think. I mean, I, these long stories that you were talking about, that you couldn't possibly put these six people into a short piece, I think it's really painful because you know so many other things and then you think, God, did I just cheat the listener because are they going to understand it or do I have to explain what it means that this girl is afraid that she may not get back into the country. Do Americans know about immigration law? You know, you start asking all those things and then you really don't have time. I, I think it was like a, a really great and really terrifying to work toward a theme too. I mean, especially with so much freedom. It was wonderful and horrible. <laughs> no? Because you're, you're trying, you know, you, you, have, you walk into it with an idea because that's the way it's set up, and, and sometimes um, that's a hard place to start from, I feel. And from the beginning, you're also trying to figure out what the difference is between a short doc and a six-minute radio piece. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for me, I do lots of six-minute radio pieces, so what's, what, but this is nothing, like nothing that I do, you know, for, for, for NPR or PRI or whatever. And, so, and, and I think that I don't have an answer to that now. This was part of my answer, I think, and I think we all had to make our, or create our own answer for, for what that is, that difference. How will it change, or does, when you work on shorter pieces like this, does it change how you approach a longer piece, a full-form documentary? Well, I know for me in general, um, even a longer radio piece, you can't explain very much. I write most of what I do is in print, and in print you can, in print I could have had a whole paragraph about the game of Go, and I could have given you the history and a couple sentences about the rules, and I could have come four or five paragraphs down, so that, and even in a, you know, uh, thousand word piece, which is not a huge piece, like, um, you know, I could have given you a lot of background, and you'd already be interested in the character. I think, I mean, everybody said that, um, uh, said something about, like, having to leave something out because it's too complicated, and I think, um, I think sometimes you take those, you take, you, you keep that with you though, and even when things are longer, things are still too complicated or you still want that kind of compactness when you can get it. Mm -hmm. um, a number of you talked about 
things that might come out of this, and I wanted to ask a little more about that. Obviously, not only do you get more tape than you could possibly use, but then there's other directions that you might want to go with either what you gathered or, or with some sensibility or something you might have learned um, in general about where this might take your work in the future. I wonder if any of you might want to talk about that. Melissa, I'm going to ask you to take that first. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just got really great personal stories, and there's separate ones. But I had actually, I was doing a story, working on a story for a while about um, uh, exotic dancers and sort of uh, why men go to see exotic dancers. And that was actually how I connected with um, the woman who I interviewed who isn't in the piece, <laughs> one of them. Um, but it, it really made me want to kind of look at that story um, in a, in a deeper way. I don't know. You, I, it would require so much time, I feel like, though. It would be hard to get her in seven minutes. It's hard to get anybody in seven minutes, I think. Anybody else? Anyone else? I know else I'm going to work on you? a piece with this other girl, and I really would like to keep using sound. I like rich mixes of seven tracks of different sounds and finding the place where people are clapping or talking at the same time. And, you know, making music out of sound. Oh, and I just, I mean, when I write, um, I mean, I, I hope to, if, you know, write something longer, either about her or about games. And um, uh, it's just extremely helpful to have the, have logged, I mean, you do interviews for a print article and, and you type while you're talking to someone and then you file it quickly and then you know, two years later, it's hard to go back and um, remember what they sounded like. Um, and, and it really helps to have, um, uh, you know, even if you're not going to use it as, as uh, tape that people are going to hear, it really helps to have, uh, to be able to go back. Because I have her whole life story on tape now, too. And I've logged it all and I've listened to it a few times and I can either go back and look at it or go back and read through it and really tell um, in words a much more powerful story than I would have if I set out to write this. Mm -hmm. um, all the way in the back and then I'll come up for Yes, um, it's really an observation, comment, reaction. I, I don't know, let me start again, what I do know. Hearing these four stories present pieces, presented in the order they were presented and created a meta piece that is very powerful, and I would hope that it's going to be broadcast in this format for everybody else who wasn't lucky enough to be in this room just now. I mean, um, beginning with someone who doesn't know anything beyond the board game and sees her whole life in terms of the game, and ending with children playing games that revi revive them and connect them with each other and give them energy and hope. It's just beautiful, you know, and then there's cheating and then there's and there's big time cheating that affected everybody in the world, you know, five years ago. So it's just, I, I think these are individually made and conceived to a project, but just, just this quartet is, is, a, is a piece about games that I hope is going to be presented in the future on, on radio or on computer or something. Joanna? <laughs> yes? <laughs> 
Yes, um, I had a question with the theme of games. Why most of your stories had a, something negative instead of positive in it? Because in every individual story, from cheating to uh, language barriers to um, the girl from P Pakistan, was it with her divorce and um, the games with her and her, her husband? With every story, it seems to have go more towards a negative connotation of a game instead of positive. I mean, did you guys purposely think, um, oh, that's, there's got to be something negative about a game, or did this just come up? I just want to say I actually wanted to just do the games and the clapping games, and then the more I talked to these kids and listened to them, they had other stories to tell besides the games and with the games. And they also still play the games. I mean, I was trying to do that in the piece that just audio, let people listen, that even with all this stuff, you still end up playing the games. It's not that the game goes away or the joy or the fun of making something. So it's what's there for me. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say, I mean, I, like I said earlier, I started out making a funny piece, I thought, but when you throw out the concept of winning and losing, um, it, you know, it's not a light concept for, I, for a lot of people, I think, you know, in just those big terms, it, it brings up um, deep stuff. But I, I would hope, I would hope that there, I mean, to me it sounds like there's redemption in all of the stories somewhere, <laughs> you know, humor, lightness, buried in with uh, the rest of it. We have time for just one more question all the way in the back. It is, uh, it's overwhelming to, I just want to make a quick comment about it. It's overwhelming to hear so much great stuff. In fact, I'm totally on overload because I, I immediately started to connect personally with the very first story and I found personal connections, moments of revelation in my own life with each of these. I was reminded of the fact that the very best kind of documentary work in public radio is the one that really gives the listener an opportunity to find him or herself in somebody else's story. And as producers, I'm wondering how important is it for you to be able to see what you did, not just as a work of art, but as the beginning of a conversation with your audience so that you can hear back from people what elements of your story and the stories you included strikes a chord in them that can help you feel your way through to the next statement you want to make in your work. And I say this given the fact that we're now in a world where the technology of broadcast allows us to have so much more of a conversation with our listeners through blogs and, and through, through email. So is that an area that's sort of of importance to you creatively and is it one that you're actively trying to open up or keep open? Well, I don't, I don't know specifically about this piece because this is the first time I've been in a room with people playing it. Um, I think just my husband has heard it. Um, and, uh, you know, with my other work, you know, we have a website that people can add their own story to. And so there's a limit to how much back and forth. But I am curious what people get out of it and what their own lives, you know, how their lives reflect in these pieces. And, you know, hopefully that'll be a conversation. Probably not right now, right, Michelle? <laughs> yes, I think Joanna's ready to move on. Thank you so much. I think
Um, I have photos of some of these kids on my laptop, so if anybody wants to see what people look like, you know, let me know. We have been inspired, intrigued, and I think we've got much more to come, it sounds like, from all of you. So thank you so much. And thanks, thanks. so much to Michelle Norris. So great to have you here.